Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vito. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, we got some stuff to get to right now. Let's go, let's go. On let's today's go. show, on today's <laughs> show, the Senate passes the biggest climate change legislation in history to cap off the best week of Joe Biden's presidency. Donald Trump wins the CPAC straw poll after sharing the stage with fellow autocrat Victor Orban. And later, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes joins to talk about his campaign to replace Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson this November. Before we get started... If you'd like to help get women around the country register to vote and you enjoy being caffeinated, do we have a new Crooked Coffee product for you? What is it? It's called the Cold Brewer, Tommy. Oh, yeah, that looks cool, actually. I saw that. It's a sleek bottle that makes brewing your own cold brew at home super easy. And like all of Crooked Coffee, a portion of the proceeds will go to register her to mobilize women in underrepresented communities to get registered to vote and have their voices heard. Both the dark and medium what-a-day roasts are perfect for cold brew, and this bottle makes it so simple. It's much better than a $6 cup at Starbucks. I like that we're going directly at Starbucks now. David and Goliath. Yeah, we're doing some contrast ads now. (laughs) Okay, get your cold brew now at crooked.com slash coffee. All right, let's get to the news. Breaking news. (laughs) I don't think we can use this. It's fair use. We're, this is parody. Fair use. We're this talking parody. about it. This is a Here's parody. what I love about this the song. Love about this song. It rules. Anyway, uh, we got to we gotta, Let's get to the breaking news. This is Monday afternoon it's here Monday in LA. Afternoon. It's 4 p.m. Pacific Coast time. Sure is. You're hearing this Tuesday morning. But just minutes ago, before we walked into the studio, we got word that the FBI has, has searched Mar-a-Lago. And the reason we got word of that is because there was some reporter from Florida who couldn't quite confirm it, and then Donald Trump confirmed it via statement. With a long statement. Yeah, this a reporter Does anyone from, want to give some highlights of the statement? A reporter from Florida said, I'm hearing reports that Mar-a-Lago has been raided, but I'm not a strong enough reporter to confirm it. I've never seen anybody do that before. I really respect the I respect humility. I respect that too. Speed kills in this instance, and he knew. Got to get that out there. And then Trump got his statement out, and he said that they've even uh, they've even they even broke into his safe. Yeah, yeah so I mean, they got his uh, ketchup stained pornos. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably worth reading Hope some help. of this statement, yeah. shouldn't we? Yeah, I mean, you probably all know it by now, but uh, but let's we're we're still in this in surprise territory right here. You bet. Yeah, as you're as you're listening to us. I mean, the gist is he's very mad. They broke into a safe. <laughs> <laughs> he's upset that Hillary Clinton stole furniture from the White House decades ago, as if, apparently. As if Hillary's <laughs> never had a run-in with the FBI. Um, yeah, that's about it. Pretty remarkable. Although, you know, our friend, uh, well, I've never met the guy, Popat on Twitter, um, <laughs> he, 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 he makes the point that to get a search warrant, what it means is that a, a, to get a federal search warrant, a federal agent submits an affidavit under oath to a federal magistrate judge uh, setting what they want to search for, what items and what probable cause there is uh, that are apparently evidence of a federal crime. And then the magistrate tends to require thorough, specifics, well-documented applications to prove it, and then you can get the search warrant. So someone thinks there's something there. In the criminal is... justice system... <laughs> This is what what you're getting from us at this moment. We could spend the next half hour just reading takes on Twitter. It's amazing. This is just happening. I'll feel old by tomorrow, but right now it'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, there is a piece of me that wonders if this is specific to the classified material that he was just had sitting in boxes. That that, could be something. That could be something. That seems like something you'd rate. Again, this will date itself poorly, probably, this guess. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But like, you know. Look, we've given Merrick Garland a lot of shit, but he's eating some, he's definitely uh, taking his legal blue shoes and he's getting... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he's he's up. I this is the, the dark brained. He's me. loose. This is going to take him up to a new level. Hey, now. Biden's passing bills. Trump's new... passing FBI agents in the hallway. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. 
We're a little giddy. Okay. Little, wow. We got him, people. Okay. We Good got day. him. Anyway, we'll talk about everything else. Great. Everyone continue to monitor. Uh, you, you two can okay. continue to monitor Twitter. Meanwhile, it's a turn out to have to do with like Melania's shoe brand or something. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, other news. On Sunday, the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, a bill that will do more to fight climate change than any action by the U.S. government in history. It will allow Medicare to negotiate for more affordable prescription drugs for the first time in history. It will prevent health insurance premium increases for people who get their coverage through the Affordable Care Act. It will reduce the deficit and will pay for it all by cracking down on rich people who cheat on their taxes and billion-dollar corporations that don't pay any. The final vote, a 50-50 split that required Vice President Kamala Harris to break the tie, came after a few days of last-minute negotiations with Kirsten Sinema and Republican antics that almost derailed the bill multiple times. But it's done. It's expected to pass the House later this week and then head to President Biden's desk where he will sign it into law. How about that, guys? I know we talked through most of the provisions in the initial Manchin-Schumer deal uh, on last week's episode, but how are you both feeling about the uh, the final product? It's um, uh, it's a surprising feeling that it uh, uh, didn't completely collapse, right? We were like once again presented with a Manchin compromise that seemed possible, and then we were waiting to see what cinema would do. Obviously, cinema did require that it be worse. Uh, that's the <laughs> that's the deal that's she the made price with you pay. private equity and the devil, but. Uh, it largely remained intact from what they announced. There were some of the tax changes, a couple things, uh, which uh, it's a, it's uh, it's good. It's wait, I, I don't know. I, I don't, <laughs> What's the hesitation here? I don't know. Hold on, give me a second. <laughs> if only you knew you'd be required to give a reaction to the bill <laughs> for the fourth well, time. <laughs> for the, I don't know why I thought that something better was going to come out. <laughs> That's good. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> you, you heard it here first, folks. This is the analysis that you come for. It's good. Let me, let me, let me. I think once we, when we heard the deal was announced, I think we were surprised by how good the climate provisions were on the whole and how, how much of what was in Build Back Better was preserved. I think we were nervous about what would happen next. We were nervous about what cinema would do. We were nervous about what happened when it hit a votorama and Republicans were proposing a bunch of amendments that could, could have derailed the whole thing. I think it was, uh, uh, <laughs> a pleasant surprise that Democrats held together uh, and that cinema did make some demands uh, for changes that made some of the tax provisions worse, but ultimately left the larger structure of it intact. Uh, I think that that's really positive. And, you know, there's plenty of criticisms that we can talk about and we will talk about. But like the fact that we were able to get this done when a month ago it was dead, it was dead a month ago. And then in a matter of days, we find out the deal exists and is now heading to the House and likely to yeah. President Biden to sign like that. That is great. That is a great thing that this happened because the alternative was it not happening, <laughs> Yeah, <you're, laughs> which people seem to forget. Yeah, yeah. You got to set your baseline to zero. Because that's kind of where we're coming from here. Um, much like the Recovery Act, this bill is really divided into three parts. Oh, my oh, God. Jesus. That's a joke for four it's, people. Uh, yeah. Well, two of them are right here and you triggered them. <laughs> <laughs> triggered the, the climate change piece is enormous. It gets us 80% of the way to the pledge we made at the Paris Climate Accord. So huge step forward. Obviously, we're going to have to build on. But that's a big deal. I mean, it reduces uh, emissions by 40% below 2005 levels. Is 2005 when we peaked? Not as a country. That was a bad year. Yes, us like, personally. Well, 2005 was Brad and Jen divorced. Russell Crowe threw a phone at the front desk guy at a hotel, and then Tom Cruise bounced on a couch, Oprah's couch. Wow, that was 2005. Yeah, yeah. wow, yeah. what a year. Early aughts sucked. Yeah, what a year. But was that when it peaked emissions wise? Uh, I 
I don't know if it's exactly going to peak, but we've been going down okay. from around that time. Right. And, and you know, we this will help us get to hopefully 40%, 40%. reduction. We were on our way probably something like 25, yeah. 30 already. So it's a it's a big step forward on top of where we're heading. Yeah. And also, I mean, it, the U.S. is responsible for a huge chunk of uh, emissions through the Industrial Revolution. But per year, it's about 15% of global emissions. And so that means other countries are obviously going to have to make cuts to get to where we need to go. This investment should lead to new technologies that we can sell or give to other countries and help them reduce emissions. And then the U.S. Biden has the the next COP, the next climate change summit in, I think, Egypt in like three months. And now we can go and say, hey, hey look, we actually did something and push other countries to do more. So that's just enormous. And there's also like $60 billion worth of money for environmental justice provisions. There's there's some things in there that suck. The leasing is frustrating. Uh, there's some you know things that will increase fossil fuel use in the short term. But I think on balance, um, the renewables will hopefully drastically reduce demand for fossil fuels. The U.S. government spending $400 billion uh, to fight climate change is going to be transformative. And the reason I know it's going to be transformative is because a bunch of independent experts, people who do this for a living, who study this for a living, ran the numbers and say that. And they all kind of found the same thing. Yeah. You know, they're really <laughs> lining up the like expert groups that are modeling it all out. And like, you know, I always I, of course, think we need to do more. I think everyone who passed the bill knows that we need to do more. But like you said, it wasn't a choice between more in this bill. It was a choice between nothing, nothing in this bill. And this and the reason we have this bill is because uh, a guy from a coal state that Donald Trump won by 30 points uh, was willing to basically sign the death warrant for the biggest industry in his state. Uh, because this is going to make clean energy more profitable than fossil fuels, even though it does help fossil fuels in the short term, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But in the long term, it's going to make uh, clean energy more profitable by dumping all this money into the economy. And Joe Manchin was willing to go along with it. Coal state senator that went for, you know, a state that went for Trump by 30 points. So that's pretty amazing. It's amazing. That's well, pretty amazing. And there's also, you know, the, the healthcare piece. I mean, the prescription drug piece is huge. It is, it is just crazy that our own laws prevented... Medicare from negotiating better drug prices for prescription drugs, but it did. Republicans blocked it forever, and now they're going to be able to slowly start to fix that. I think it's 10 drugs, uh, the specifics TBD in 2026 that they can negotiate for, and that'll increase to 20 drugs. So that will save us a lot of money. 13 million people will be able to um, not see a huge premium increase if they get their healthcare insurance through the ACA. And then the tax provisions, I think, are really interesting and transformative, the 15% minimum tax. And then this excise tax on stock buybacks um, is estimated to raise $73 billion or more over a decade. Yeah, so just so people... It's a huge so, deal. So Cinema demanded that they remove this they removed the provision closing the carried interest loophole. This as a favor to private equity. Uh, but in its stead, they put this 1% tax on stock buybacks. Stock buybacks are something where basically companies kind of enrich themselves and buy buy their stock back. Um, and so, and so, and something that helps uh, uh, large, the rich, shareholders. large shareholders, like people that have- You, you know, buy your own stock, so there's fewer shares outstanding, so the price goes up. And so it basically is something that benefits fantastically wealthy people. So they replaced a tax that we really should fix uh, that benefits extremely wealthy people for a different tax that will also tax really wealthy people. Both should be in there. We should be doing all of them. Uh, but I, I didn't see actually a lot of people reporting on that, that, that yeah. there was this change. Well, but also hopefully incentivize actually investing in R&D or CapEx. Like Apple spent- uh, over $400 billion on stock buybacks over the last decade. That's nearly double what they spent on R&D or capital expenditures. So hopefully this means they'll now be incentivized to spend more money on things that create more jobs. 
Yeah. So she ha- so she helped uh, help the hedge fund uh, folks with the carried interest <laughs> loophole. She helped some private equity folks by uh, exempting them from the corporate minimum tax. But then she put back in the stock buybacks, which I guess was Mark Warner's idea yeah. to get it back in the bill to to, to fill the hole that she uh, left when she took that other stuff out. She also added, by the way, more climate money for drought mitigation in Western states. So that Five was a, billion. A, a good thing that she yeah. did. And then uh, the other things that changed from the initial deal, um, Republicans successfully killed a $35 cap on insulin per month. Uh, per month since it didn't qualify for reconciliation under the budget rules. And so it didn't qualify. Democrats decided to keep it in the bill anyway, which then would require 60 votes to pass, not 50, because it didn't comply with reconciliation rules. And Democrats got 57. They got seven Republicans on board, but they needed three more. Some people are like, why didn't Schumer everyone just ignore the parliamentarian? Well, they did. Uh, they put it in the bill. They needed 60. Uh, otherwise, you can't just... If, if The only way you could do that otherwise is if you ignore the parliamentarian. But then Manchin and Cinema have said that if you completely ignore the parliamentarian, they the you reason, wouldn't get their votes. The anyway. reason we can't do it is because of the same fucking mess we've been in for years. Yeah. yeah. It's the same problem. And, and again, but to clarify that, that what we failed to do was cap out-of-pocket insulin costs for people who have private insurance. Correct. We did cap it for uh, Medicare Very recipients. good point. Yeah. And, and similarly, another thing the parliamentarian did, uh, Democrats wanted to require drug companies to pay rebates if the price of medicine rises faster than inflation. And they wanted this to cover patients under both Medicare and private insurance. Parliamentarian ruled it can only apply to Medicare patients. Uh, so the rebate goes to Medicare patients too. Again, anything that affects the federal budget is is fair game and reconciliation anything mm-hmm. that goes to the private sector they have a harder time passing through reconciliation unfortunately bernie sanders was not thrilled with the final bill even though he still voted for it and you know we saw a number of progressive activists share uh similar sentiments on twitter and elsewhere what would you guys say to people who might be disappointed by where we ended up love it you know i went if you if you look at what bernie actually said in full i feel like there were sort of kind of two kinds of criticisms that I saw. One was, you know, Bernie largely, he criticized the fossil fuel subsidies and the parts of mm-hmm. uh, of this of this that are, uh, um, will, will do increased leasing and fair enough. But the, the lion's share of his criticism was basically saying, we should be doing Build Back Better. There were yeah. a lot of really important right. things in Build Back right. Better. And there was both a policy critique and a political critique. The policy critique is, these are things this country needs. There is inflation. There are these incredibly high costs. We are uh, uh, failing to address them. Uh, because we lack two votes. And he's very frustrated by that. And he just wanted to make a kind of final plea for doing the larger Build Back Better plan. And fair enough, there was really good stuff in that plan for pre-K, for for uh, um, childcare, for uh, for healthcare uh, across the board. Uh, there's Then there's this criticism on the climate provisions themselves uh, and the fact that this is a climate crisis. This is, you know, the biggest investment in American history, but in reality, we haven't made very many investments in this in the past. And when you compare it to other things we call priorities like the military, uh, it's still a paltry amount compared to the scale of the crisis. And 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 fair enough. My view on this is, yeah, we should do more of what was in Build Back Better. We need more senators to do it. And on the question of these climate provisions themselves, just looking at the climate proposals themselves, I actually think it's important that we declare a victory. Not the victory, not the final victory, but after such a long time of being unable to do anything, you want Congress to do more? Absolutely. You want Congress to do more on social safety? Absolutely. On climate? Absolutely. But like, I get saying they don't go far enough. Of course, we need to do more. But I do think it's important as a movement that we take moments to kind of celebrate victories, to celebrate hard-fought 
wins that will make a difference. Like it, we just, no one wants to be part of a movement where every every happy moment is cringe and every victory is a secret loss. It's just not a way to do politics that brings more people in, that's persuasive, that makes people want to be part of your movement. We should declare a victory, not the final victory, but a victory nonetheless. I was just going to say, the celebration is not about the job being done. The celebration is to tell people that you can make progress and to inspire people to continue making progress because we can actually see the gains, which is what this bill is doing right now. We're actually seeing real progress happen. And that's why you celebrate. You don't celebrate to say, oh, we did enough and that's it. You can tweet that you like Maggie Rogers' new album. And that's not a criticism of Beyonce's new album because you didn't also tweet about that. They're separate issues. Did you, is this a, did you, did you get I might have gotten a little feedback. Did you get <laughs> might have gotten a little feedback. I'm sorry, I missed that. It's okay. But again, you reelect a Democratic House. We had two more Democratic senators who were willing to get rid of the filibuster. We're going to get more progressive policies. You know how we know that? Because Everyone else on the Democratic Party in Congress signed off on the three and a half trillion dollar bill. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, so we we know this. It's not we don't have to take them for their word. They all voted for this shit. We're two we're two senators away now. If we if we reelect the Democratic House, so that's good news. And to clarify, Beyonce's album is also great. I think so too. I want the I think so to too. Know, no, I would never. I, I think that I the never. lessons for me are the climate activists again. They should take the win because they won something, which was drive climate to the top of the agenda. So while all this other stuff was getting cut out. Uh, Medicare expansion to include dental, vision, hearing, paid medical leave, like all these other things got stripped away, but climate stayed in. And that was because of great work and activism and because the planet's burning uh, to having majorities in the Senate and the House is everything. It's everything. We, we can't kick Joe Manchin out of the party. We need his vote. This is why. Lastly, the thing that frustrates me the most in all of politics is the people who say all politicians are bad. All the parties are bad. They're all the same. No, they are not. Every Republican voted against this bill. Within the Democratic Party, there are really great politicians and there are some kind of shitty ones. Anyone who tells you they're all the same is lazy, stupid, or trying to mislead you. Do not listen to them. Listen to the climate experts and what they're saying about the impact of this bill. Also, there are some politicians who are uh, really great sometimes and shitty other times and great on some issues and shitty on other issues. People are complicated. You don't have to have them be your heroes or your villains. They work for you. They, are, they work for you. They are instruments of progress or not. And it's it's our job to continue pushing them. And guess what? That happens on election day. It happens between election days. Voting is important. Public pressure is also important. And so you just got to keep up the organizing and keep up the pressure. So Joe Biden, Joe Biden. Heard of him. And the Democratic Congress have now passed a climate change bill, a health care bill, a prescription drug bill, a COVID relief bill, a bipartisan infrastructure bill, a bipartisan gun violence bill, a bipartisan bill to expand health care for veterans who've been exposed to burn pits, and a bipartisan bill to help America compete with China for semiconductor jobs. This has led uh, Politico Playbook, mm. the publication we trust and value the most. Mm-hmm. go to. As everyone has known right. for a long time here at Pod Save America, what we think about Politico Playbook. They called Joe Biden, quote, one of the most legislatively successful presidents of the modern era. Damn. You know what I think? What? I think Biden's passing bills, Trump's passing FBI agents in the hallway. You said that joke earlier, right? Yeah, I did. Okay, good. I just want to say. Also, in just the last 10 days, Biden also (laughs) took executive action to protect abortion access, announced the successful mission to kill an al-Qaeda leader, and is presiding over an economy where inflation is still high, but gas prices are falling and unemployment is at record lows. Everything's coming up Brandon, guys. And and he did a lot Everything's of that. Everything's coming up Brandon. He did that when he had COVID. 
Yeah, he was oh, in yeah, isolation. Be co- so I saw some some meme, some <laughs> some, meme uh, some meme yesterday. Some said said defeated COVID twice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's another accomplishment. They finally found a meme that works for them. They settled on it. Yeah, the dark. That's not Brand- easy. Do you want to talk about the dark Brandon thing for a second? <laughs> I barely know what it is. I-, I had to read a Slate story about it. How'd that go? <laughs> I only I only understand it just a little well, bit more piece. now. Here's but the White House is tweeting it out. They got they got Joe Biden with glowy eyes and you know layers of irony on irony. He had a good week. Yeah, there's think pieces about it. Yeah, he had a good week. <laughs> think pieces about the dark Brandon meme. Anyway, I just I would I would pay a lot of money to hear someone in the White House explain to Joe Biden the dark Brandon meme. That's right. what I want. Because where does that explanation begin? Like, what is a meme? What is the dark Brandon? Web? That what's the, what's well, you my see, eye? Uh, why, why did you tweet out my eyes like that? What's a tweet? All in the, Bletchley all Park, they made something <laughs> called the Enigma Machine. <laughs> is that what it starts? <laughs> no. Okay. All right. I'll do a more serious question. Um, sure. So. Obviously, we have no idea uh, whether the string of good news uh, will affect the midterms. But if you are in the White House or if you're running a Democratic campaign, how do you talk about all these accomplishments? How do they change your strategy, if at all? Are we back to uh, hashtags Democrats deliver? <laughs> <laughs> it's not. No, no, we're not. Good. The Yeah, I, I, w- I was thinking about this and I feel like there's a spectrum and it runs from uh, uh, Obama early 2009 uh-huh. to Trump all the time. Like Obama 2009 is having an incredibly successful legislative period, uh, passing a recovery act, passing a student loan bill, passing a health care bill, passing yeah. a Wall Street bill. But, you know, we, we, we went through we this it. and where the, 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 con- the economy was still doing terribly. You couldn't tell people that you'd solve their problems. And you also can't brag about how much worse things could have been but for your interventions. And so you're really careful about how you talk about your accomplishments. That runs all the way to Trump. There's so many caveats. So many caveats. Five, we know, five we know, paragraphs we of throat clearing about how how tough it is out there before you before get to you your first Before you can say what you did. <laughs> before the three parts of the recovery. Yeah. And by the time you get to there, the CNN me. has switched. CNN, yeah. Yeah, CNN exactly. is gone. They're out. They're out. But so, and then you have Trump that just declares victory. Uh, of course, that didn't really work for him. People can see with their eyes. It doesn't really work. So you need to find something in the middle. And I do think that based on how Republicans have been behaving, uh, uh, with a kind of like imperiousness and assumption that they will face no political repercussions for virtually any decision. I think it's just about the choice. You just lay these things out. Democrats, uh, you know, all of these bills, even the ones that had the most bipartisan support were opposed by the majority of Republicans, right? You can you can, you can can try to call them, they are on some level bipartisan, but Republicans whipped against the 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 manufacturing bill. They They have tried to stop every single one of these. They lost some people but they did try to stop them. And so you just make the choice. Here's what we tried to do. They tried to, uh, uh, they, they, they stripped out our ability to make insulin cheaper for everybody. We wanted to make America more competitive. They voted against the bill. We uh, wanted to stop gun violence. Most of them voted against the bill. You just paint the picture of the choice that they're making. They threw it in a fit of peak, tried to stop us from helping veterans, right? That's what's at stake. Yeah, I mean, the hard part of this bill, like you, you alluded to, is that like the Affordable Care Act, that the, the it, it will take years to be felt. It will take years to go into effect. So it's not like you can run on, hey, uh, Joe Biden just sent you a check, like cash or stimmy, vote for me, whatever. And so we have to sell, I think, a narrative that Democrats get things done while the Republican Party is obstructionist and extreme in all these ways. We tried to cap the cost of insulin. Republicans blocked it. Republicans voted against health care from veterans who got sick inhaling toxic fumes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Democrats got it done. And so I, I think that's the core message is sort of talking about momentum and all the things the Democratic Party did. And I think that's kind of where the take the win message comes in because we I think we need to buck our own party up because a lot of people are understandably 
bummed out and, and disappointed about the lack of progress of, of a, a year of getting mansioned, but then just talk about the, the contrast and the choice. I mean, that's what elections are. It's about, you know, imperfect choices. And I think, unfortunately, part of this will be a little bit luck of luck because we need gas prices to keep going down in the short term. And that is probably going to have less to do with anything that happens in Washington than like China's COVID policies and whether they still have a COVID zero policy and they lock down their economy constantly and it, it disrupts demand. But um, hopefully the Fed's interest rate increases will work. Uh, inflation will go down. These jobs numbers were really good. But there is a bit of like a, a sentiment uh, of feelings about the economy that is hard to uh, drive if you're the president, but is goes a long way towards contributing to whether people think the country's on the right track or the wrong track, whether they support you, whether they don't. And that's why I think too, as as president, your job is not to be the the daily uh, barometer of how the economy is doing or not. It's um, who's fighting for you, right? Democrats are fighting for what people care about, right? Your number one issue is inflation. Absolutely, we're trying to lower the cost of your energy bills, the cost of your healthcare bills, cost of your prescription drugs. And Republicans voted against all that shit. And you know what they care about? They're out there trying to criminalize abortion. They're coming after gay marriage, right? They're not they're not even paying attention to the issues that you care about most, which is the cost of everything in your life right now, which Democrats are fighting for. And they're off because they're so extreme. They're trying to do all this other shit. And that's what they're going to do if they if they take power. It's so funny that we're talking about how Joe Biden should sell like the greatest legislative success since FDR and Trump's out there announcing an FBI raid on himself. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's real, real, real competing contrast. strategies here. It's quite a contrast. All right. Well, just so we don't get too optimistic about politics, uh, let's talk about the conservative political action conference known as CPAC. That was held in Dallas, Texas over the weekend. Uh, CPAC is now for the hardest of hardcore MAGA fans. Uh, Donald Trump spoke and was once again the overwhelming favorite of the attendees. 69% nice said they want Trump to be the GOP nominee in 2024, while 24% chose Ron DeSantis. That's a bigger margin for Trump than he got at February's uh, CPAC conference in Orlando. Uh, a straw poll conducted by his pollster at a conference <laughs> run by Matt Schlapp and his wife Mercedes Schlapp who also worked for Trump. So I don't know that we put a lot of stock in this yeah. poll. Well, okay. Well, all the, all, the, all the public polls still have him ahead too. So, you know. But the fellow authoritarian who stole the CPAC spotlight from Trump wasn't DeSantis, wasn't a potential 24 rival. It was the prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban. Here's a clip. Hungary shall protect the institution of marriage as the union of one man and one woman. We don't need more genders. We need more rangers. <laughs> Less drag queens and more Chuck Norris. The globalists can all go to hell. I have come to Texas. We must coordinate the movement of our troops because we face the same challenge. You have midterm elections this year. And we will have elections in the European Parliament same year. These two locations will define the two fronts in the battle being fought for Western civilization. Today, we hold neither of them. Yet, we need both. Tommy, why the hell was the Hungarian prime minister invited to CPAC? And for our listeners who aren't yet worldos, uh, can you talk about why Orban is such a dangerous figure? Sure. Uh, what did he say about Chuck Norris? What more? Uh, he was trying to he was trying to Texas it up a little bit. So more he rangers. said. Um, 
He said, uh, we need not more genders, more rangers. And then he said, not more drag queens, more Chuck Norris's. Man, that's a really it, it didn't, a dated. It's dated, a little complicated. According to the first Google result on DuckDuckGo, <laughs> uh, the Chuck Norris meme also emerged in 2005. So it's a real theme. Uh, Victor Orban sucks. He is the prime minister of Hungary. He spent the last decade crushing their democracy. He basically took over the free press by putting his... Um, his uh, sycophants in charge. He gerrymandered their elections. In April, his party got 54% of the vote, but 83% of the districts. So it's a far more extreme Oof. gerrymander than ours. And he's changed the constitution to entrench his power and, and stuff the courts full of his cronies and you know, basically created this kleptocratic mafia-like state where businesses have to support the Fidesz party, his political party, or else uh, they can get taken over or shut down or, or harassed by the tax authorities. He's anti-gay, he's anti-immigrant, uh, and he demagogues George Soros in a way that it's incredibly anti-Semitic. And so Orban, none of this is secret. He's been like this for a long time, but a few weeks ago, he gave a speech where he said, we Hungarians are not mixed race and we do not want to become a mixed race. That's pretty, pretty specific. Yeah, I mean, his own advisor called it, quote, a purely Nazi diatribe worthy of Joseph Goebbels. Uh, but CPAC still welcomed him. And that doesn't really surprise me because Trump loves Orban. He endorsed him. The Maganots want to emulate Orban and do what he did uh, to Hungary here. And he, Orban is in many ways a much smarter, more effective Trump and someone we should be really worried about. Trump invited him to Bedminster on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, and look, Orban's speech was like, we basically autocrats, these like white nationalists need to coordinate to crush our enemies, the Democrats. Um, and, and, you know, that's where CPAC is where the Republican Party is going. You know, they're more extreme and more authoritarian. It's a fascist organization. CPAC yeah. is now a fascist. It's an outpost for international fascism. This was an international fascist conference. That's why you have Viktor Orban. He's talking about a international fascist movement taking wants that, that he wants to connect and collaborate between Europe and the United States and around the world. Uh, this is, you know, saying we, you know, attacking transgender people, saying we need fewer drag queens and more rangers or whatever. It's just pure fascist rhetoric. Uh, that's what the conference has become. That's why you see a kind of, and and it is, you know, like fascism isn't, isn't coherent. It doesn't have to be. It's a permission structure for people to be their absolute most vile selves. And that is why it kind of spreads from the top down. It's why you see reporters being harassed at this conference and being kind of yelled at and followed around by people smiling and, and jeering at them. It is a kind of spreading vicious ideology. And this is the outpost of the United States of America. And it's, um, you know, we, we should just call it what it is. They were interviewing uh, attendees about Orban's mixed race comments too. Mm -hmm. And you had a bunch of attendees saying things like, Ooh, I don't know about that. I that's that's a little uncomfortable. And then they they called one back, and they're like, "But you know what? He's pretty perfect. Otherwise, he's pretty great. The whole package is great. I don't know about that, but the you're, you can see how it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. That's well, they know that's the other thing about it too is that they're all part of the team. They're there as part of the that's team. Right. They have to defend right. themselves. There's no there's there. no comment that's that's too extreme and for them a, to. And it's also a very old idea. They're both in on the joke, and they're you know the attendees at CPAC. They are both being misled, but they know it, and they're part of. They they feel as though they're part of the team doing the misleading. Yeah, and they love that in 2015, he was the harshest uh, on migrants coming from places like Syria or Afghanistan. I mean, basically Muslims. And, you know, in, in 2014, he said, the new state that we are building in Hungary is an illiberal state. So that all this gerrymandering and sort of, you know, legalized autocracy is kind of what he's overtly for. Point, and I think yeah. what well, Republicans also, want. And also why you see now increasingly Republican candidates when they're not 
vilifying reporters from mainstream outlets, they're no longer even talking to them. Yeah, they don't even engage. They don't let them in. They don't let them into their events. It's all part of the same kind of permission structure for abandoning all the kind of liberal values that have been at the core of, you know, the thing we pretended America was, at least for a while. Well, so, yeah, speaking of America, Trump delivered a version of the uh, new stump speech he first gave in D.C. a few weeks ago, where he now casually proposes the death penalty for drug dealers and tent cities for people experiencing homelessness. Which uh, he probably stole from Rodrigo Duterte over in the Philippines. Right, of course. Um, here's a clip of, uh, of, of Trump's almost two-hour speech at CPAC. If you instituted the death penalty for drug dealers, traffickers, I believe that drug dealing would go down 50% on day one. I'll tell you one thing, if I'm a drug dealer, I'm going to say, no thanks, I'm going someplace else. The only way you're going to remove the homeless encampments and reclaim our downtowns is to open up large parcels, create 10 cities, you have to have it. We have to abolish the Green New Deal. Ronnie Jackson, my doctor. He loved looking at my body. It was so strong and powerful. I ran twice, I won twice, and did much better the second time than I did the first, getting millions and millions of more votes. And now we may have to do it again. I did not. Love looking at my body. That, Love looking at my body. I think he's being funny. He's being oh, funny. That, that is Trump where he's actually charming and funny. He's like making fun of himself as a good joke. Yeah, he made it. Yeah. It's, yeah, you were saying Orban's mm. a more effective Trump, but I do think fu- uh, Trump's funnier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Orban's jokes. He commands it. And he's a celebrity. Well. He's, yeah. uh, that was, uh, I did not uh, watch this speech. And nor did I. Um, but I saw, I was scrolling through Twitter when it was on and, and our pal Tim Miller said, I hate to ruin everyone's weekends, but this is absolutely the speech of someone who is running for president again. No doubt. And, and, de- and definitely in in pole position, leading the field here, and has a very strong grip on the party. He read something more about it for the Bulwark today, and I could not agree more. I was definitely, like, over the last couple of months, flirting with the, like, can DeSantis do it? Can DeSantis take him down? I don't know. I don't know. You watch a speech like that, and you see the crowd, and I know that CPAC, and I know they're, like, special MAGA hardcore fans, but that's a, uh, it's going to be tough for Ron DeSantis to take him down. I think this, like I'd like to see him try. I think maybe he could yeah. do it. I think the question of will Trump run again to me, the way to answer that is what does he have to do that's a better use of his time? <laughs> they, unless nothing. this FBI yeah. raid goes really, really well, <laughs> right? I mean, they, they just took all his pornos, <laughs> so now he's what's he going to do? The uh, yeah, I mean, he he basically says he says America's on the edge of an abyss, and our movement is the only force on earth that can save it. That's it's so that's not something he's planning. That, and so I'm handing it over to Ron DeSantis. I don't think so. Well, and what if the FBI raid is Ron DeSantis in like a FBI like, costume jacket? <laughs> I mean, this is all like our this is our horse race speculation about it. But the the real danger here is that the Republican primary is going to end up being or could end up being Trump, DeSantis, and others just trying to out fascist each other. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, right? I mean, look, we've... they're all it's it's the, all these forces are just pulling them further and further to the right, further extreme, so that each one of them has to paint a darker image of America. For and, sure. You know, I mean, this, that's what's really scary about this. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, we there was this little, you know, obviously there's this kerfuffle about the DCCC running ads for a, for a right-wing uh, uh, goon uh, and in Michigan. And the problem here is there are plenty of places all across the country where the DCCC didn't have to run an ad for the Republican base to choose the most despicable, vile human beings on earth. You know, we talk a lot about what we need to do to preserve democracy, but like this larger threat, it is hard to have a democratic society in a country where a huge preponderance of people aren't 
Democrats, small D Democrats. And like the Republican primaries across the country are now fucking pasta makers that take in dough and extrude these fucking fascists, no matter what they went in looking like. At the risk of uh, getting um, a job on the New York Times op-ed page, I do. I am concerned that both sides, rhetorically, the the right, they they have this apocalyptic vision, like the great replacement theory. The left is going to destroy us, and then on the left, we're like these people are trying to destroy our democracy, and I I believe that very much to be true. But it is it's frightening to hear these two competing visions of like the world ending. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure how that strikes like the average voter who no. pays attention to politics for like the two weeks before an election. I think about that a lot because I, like you, genuinely believe that this is a threat to democracy, as do not just a bunch of like wild eyed liberals like us, but a lot of former Republicans like our friend Tim Miller, like other people who had once been conservatives and or people like Liz Cheney, who are still extremely conservative on most issues, but are still worried that that Donald Trump and, and the MAGA movement is a threat to democracy. Right? Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney. Yeah, we, got, we got fucking someone wheeled Dick Cheney out. And, Literally. And he was. Yeah, it took him out of a fucking that fucking giant mechanical egg he sleeps in. Yeah. So I know, but I I wonder, you know, I think average people going about their day may not see that threat who don't pay as close attention to the news as we do and don't consume this stuff all day long and don't pay attention to what's happening at CPAC. But um, right. people should start paying because, attention. Because the Orban version of autocracy is not you declare an emergency, a state of emergency, you send the troops into the streets. You know, it's not like El Sisi in Egypt. It's you uh, you get uh, a two-thirds majority in parliament so you can change the constitution. So you gerrymander the districts. So you pack the courts and ignore the ones you don't like. And your cronies take over the media so no one hears from the opposition. Like that's the slower, long lead time version of an illiberal state. Yes. Well, and, 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 you know, you, you pose this thing, well, what do we do when the, like, you know, the two visions are these two extremes. One is a fascistic vision for the future of this country. The other is a group of people desperately trying to raise the alarm about the fascistic threat to this country. And you say, well, how do we end up, how do we end up in this mess? Right? Like what were the weaknesses uh, that allowed us to be in a situation where it's basically a controversy, right? Which of these two polls is going to win out. And one of the reasons we were weak to fascism is because the mainstream press in this country cannot be honest about about the threats that we face. They are enamored of a kind of objectivity that has left us vulnerable, that it has made it seem as though it's a partisan exercise to defend democracy. And when we look back on this era and we see uh, mainstream outlets spending way too much time worried about trans swimmers and pronouns and woke politics and cancel culture on college campuses and what happened to Dave Chappelle because these people didn't know their fucking enemy staring them in the face this will be why. This will be one of the reasons it either got so close or we fell over the edge. Uh, yeah, but I think um, that fewer people are reading those terrible New York Times op-eds than you might mm. imagine. No, no, no. It's I not think, a, I think a huge. I think a much bigger problem is not like we can all yell about the mainstream media and I have – you've heard me do it plenty of times. There are just an, an enormous number of people in this country who are not consuming that media. And if Maggie Haberman and Peter Baker and all the rest of them got together and said, Trump is a fascist, let's put it on the headline of the New York Times, I do not know that it would make much of a difference at this point with all of the people in this country who are consuming all kinds of horrible propaganda from uh, the right. Uh, of course, of course. I'm not saying these specific things would solve the problem, but as part of a collective failure of 
all the kind of institutions that inform people to be honest about the threat, to focus on the threat that involves. Yet, like, look, the New York Times remains the kind of like assignment editor for a lot of press across the country. What it, it affects what becomes the lead story about national politics on local news, what happens on local news stations, many of which are now conservative, uh, is a lot of the ways people get information. All of these different things are failing to properly talk about the threat. That is one of the great weaknesses we have. And the fact that all of our news is then kind of mediated through these social media platforms that yeah, only that only exa- that Those only kids are getting their news li- from TikTok. Who's who's that moderating lift, that one? Right. That only lifts <laughs> up the most news. extreme <laughs> thing. Dark brand. Dark Brandon runs that shit yeah, now. That's what's the, no. That's... The, the solution is we Democrats need to make sure that we attack others within our party who have marginally different policy views than <laughs> us all day, every day. That is how we're going to get through this. Back. I was like, wow, we got the bill done. The it, the, the fights about it were just like instantly onto him. Like everyone, yeah. take a fucking breath for ten seconds and just. just... I think that to, <laughs> to your point, I mean, that's like a hundred people that just. It is. It is. It's a hundred people, but there are, unfortunately there are people who have. Some influence on the, uh, the elite opinion. Um, all right. Speaking of Trump, uh, we're somehow still getting new tell-all books about him. Uh, speaking of insular conversations also, mm-hmm. Maggie Haberman's will be out in October. Uh, I'll read it. Uh, but Axios <laughs> reported today that her book will include a story about how the White House resident staff periodically found documents that Trump tried to flush down his toilets. Uh, and fortunately for all of us, there were pictures. Who snapped that photo? I, you, you, excuse me. You walk into the president's shitter and there's a piece of paper that says Stefanik on it. You take a picture. I take a picture and he's like, of course you would. That's well, where his ass was. Uh, That's the piece also, of paper. by the way, I Poop put, scoop? We, I, no? we included this story this morning. I feel like the FBI raids really overshadowed uh, this, the, this, yeah, uh, this I think documents right in the shitter story. John, I think you're safe. You're on safe ground with that assessment. <laughs> um, meanwhile, Maggie's colleague at the Times, Peter Baker, who I also just mentioned, along with his wife, Susan Glasser of The New Yorker, uh, they have a new book out that says Trump once asked Chief of Staff John Kelly, why can't you be like the German generals in World War II? That's just... Which is such a funny thing, because Kelly, Kelly's next sentence is, uh, you do know they tried to kill Hitler three times, which is a very funny response, and I hope he actually said. But it's such a funny statement. You just step back. Obviously, it's it's madness. But it's like, they tried to kill Hitler, and then they lost. <laughs> there's, a, there's a movie about it. Yeah, I don't yeah. think that's where his head went. I don't think he, he was thinking that far ahead. Someone rent Valkyrie for he, the guy. Yeah, He yeah. was just thinking, I need generals like that. That's every, all he's thinking. Every time you watch Valkyrie, you're like, this time. Yeah, come on. They're going to get him. I don't done. know. That, like, here, I mean, back to our conversation we were just having, Like, I, I feel like the shock of these revolutions, he, just it, it's wearing off. But but at the same time, the guy seems like he's ready to run again, and they should matter, and we should figure out a way to make these revolutions Here's matter. the thing. So the, the, the New Yorker piece, it's an excerpt from this book, leads with a scene where Trump tells his team, he wants an Independence Day parade. He wants a military parade through Washington, D.C. with like tanks and shit, like a good old dictator. And it quotes Trump saying to his chief of staff, John Kelly, I don't want any wounded veterans in the parade. That doesn't look good for me. We've seen that reported before, Mm -hmm. but it was like kind of not in quote to his backgrounds. If John Kelly, four-star Marine general who lost a son in combat, goes on TV, does a interview about Trump saying this to him on camera, that is powerful. That could be potentially devastating for Trump. But if the Committee to Save America guys just go to what's the fancy place in Georgetown called that we always Cafe make fun Milano. Thank you, John. Cafe it's Milano. And whisper on background to New Yorker feature writers. It's just going to be the endless cycle of everything. Every bad revelation about Trump is fake news and it gets denied. And then the New York Times says a diner in Cleveland is full of people who've never heard of the story and they're right. And we're on to the next thing. I guess what I feel about this is a lot of this is actually just sort of giving more color and kind of detail to stories we'd already known. I mean, 
we're a nerd to it, but there have been many reports of have Trump having collected works of Hitler at his bedside table, the one book he went mm, back to. That's right. And it's also uh, uh, the summer of 2022. So it's like, if we're going to hear more from John Kelly, if we're going to hear more from Mattis, if we're going to hear more from 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 any of these generals, uh, I'm all for it. Let's. I'd love to see it in September of 2024 after he's yeah. I was going to say, I, yeah. think the, I think the key is not just, you're right, Tommy, that people like John Kelly have to like go out and say this publicly, but he just needs to be a constant drumbeat all the time, every day. We're a couple weeks out from the last uh, episode of Insurrection. Doesn't it already feel like it's starting to become uh, too distant of a memory? The uh, the the, hear- the January six hearings, and I'm like, no, no, we were we had it for for a moment. It felt like yeah, it's right there. And you're already starting to. It's like I, I Liz Cheney should run a hearing every day. Can we have a run a hearing every day from now until uh, 2024? I hope she does. <laughs> there's this uh, there's this book by Ishiguro uh, called The Buried Giant. And it's about a fog that falls over England that makes them all lose their memories. And we live under that fog. Oh, God. we ha- Yeah. Every day. And it's every just day. we we live under it and things do not last. And so it's like whatever's going to we're going to do with Trump. It does not going to matter for a year or more. Yeah. Uh, one. Right Unless way- he goes to fucking jail. Unless go, be, again. Again, any updates? Any updates? Yeah. We have, uh, uh, well, let me let me refresh. Pope yeah, uh, unless okay. unless Merrick Garland takes some more of this compound V and fucking <laughs> drags Trump out of that fucking Gauche Hotel throws him in a fucking cell. <laughs> what is Compound V? It's the it's the it's the liquid from uh, the boys that makes you a superhero. Uh, another boys reference. Got it. Um, it's the same boys reference. I'm getting left behind. Okay, last item. Okay. Cultures. <laughs> One right wing monster who didn't attend CPAC was Alex yep. Jones, uh, who a jury just ordered to pay forty five million dollars in punitive damages to the parents of a six year old boy who was murdered in the Sandy Hook shooting. Jones had previously been found liable for defamation and quote intentional infliction of emotional distress against the parents. Uh, for repeatedly lying and spreading conspiracies about the massacre, the victims, and their families, including that they were all just crisis actors who made it up and it was a false flag operation by the federal government. Uh, Here is a clip of the judge addressing Jones during the trial. This is not your show. Do you understand what I have said? Yes, I believe what I said was true. So I guess you believe everything you say is true, but it isn't. Love it. What was your uh, what was your reaction to that? I thought it was very interesting that she she pointed out this isn't your show. Yeah, this isn't your show. So first of all, it seems hard to it, he should be charged with perjury, and it's mm-hmm. seem it will be strange if that doesn't happen, given how many times the judge had to instruct Alex Jones to stop lying on the stand. <laughs> There's something that you know you you're obviously under oath in a courtroom, but also just beyond that, there is a kind of rhythm. <laughs> to a court proceeding that can't be kind of overwhelmed by like pizzazz and showmanship and lies. You know, like you can go on television and you can say all you want, the two plus two equals five, two plus two equals five, but then you get in that courtroom and you have to, you are under oath, your uh, uh, your lawyers are officers of the court. There are these, there are these, it's this bastion where the kind of, gra- the rules of gravity being suspended no longer apply. And once just a little bit of their fucking coat gets caught in the gears of the justice system, they get kind of ground up, you know, discovery happens. The lawyer hands over the fucking text. Now those Oops. go to January 6th. Uh, you know, the, the, the big lie attorneys, you know, the Kraken attorneys, they go in front of a judge. The judge says, have you found fraud? They have to say no, right? Like once the kind of, it's hard to get these people in a courtroom and it's been hard to get Trump in a courtroom and it's been hard to get Giuliani in a courtroom. But once we get them in a fucking courtroom, uh, their powers uh, uh, leave them. Yeah. I mean, I think what I took away from this trial was um, Alex Jones did what he did for money. 
There was a point where InfoWars was making $800,000 a day, a day. And what he would do was he would sell his listeners on this barrage of like paranoid, delusional fantasies, and then he'd sell them supplements or like doomsday prepper packs or whatever other gold, like apocalyptic fantasies. And I, I was listening, I, should, I played a clip for you guys in our office earlier. In May, he literally berated his audience for not spending enough in the Infowars store saying, if you don't support us, you're helping the enemy. And then what we learned at this trial is he lied about everything because his, his idiot lawyer turned over his a copy of his phone for two full years to the defense oh, yeah. like, to the, the other counsel for some reason. And what we know is, you know, Alex Jones lied to the press. He lied to his audience. He lied to the lawyers, to the San Diego parents. Um, he lied to the court. He is the scum of the earth. And, and I think um, what drives me crazy about Alex Jones is there is a, there's a group of people who treat him like he's funny or harmless or you can ironically like him because he's putting on a show that Joe Rogan is kind of in this category. No, this man tortured the families of six-year-old kids who were murdered. People went to their homes and harassed them. And then he uses insane conspiracy theories to bilk the audience he's, he's constructed through these theories for cash. And he's a scumbag. And he, he, I agree. I think he perjured himself and he will likely get prosecuted for this, but he deserved, the InfoWars should be shut down. There's nothing First Amendment protected about spreading, knowingly spreading lies about the death of six-year-olds. And now we know that his texts were turned over to the January 6th committee. There's a report in the Daily Beast that Tucker Carlson is terrified about his text chains with Alex Jones leaking. So a lot more could come from this hearing. You and, hear the, um, the Daily episode about it today? Yes. It's heartbreaking. It, that's, that's what I took from this whole thing is, I, I mean, I, I knew all this, of course, like you, but so often I think the media coverage focuses on Alex Jones and his conspiracies and disinformation. And it's sort of just like esoteric concept. And you hear the father of this six-year-old talk about dropping him off and holding his dead body. I mean, it, it was Being called a crisis actor. It, it, it is horrifying. What like, these are just lies. Lies seems like too, too, too a benign of a word. Conspiracy seems like too benign of a word. You know, it's like when you when you hear what these parents and what these families who have lost their children have gone through because of this fucking man who was just trying to make money off them. It, it is horrific. Horrific. Scum of the earth. Scum Absolute of the earth. scum of the earth. Yeah. Just, the, just scum of the earth. Bad guy, Alex Jones. Bad guy. And also, like, you know, we make InfoWars was seen as fringe and it didn't matter, but it, it really did drive a, a a narrative in a in a subset of like the MAGA 4chan QAnon world that is it did it, it damage to the country you know yeah, and Alex Jones that's what's caught that's the media that's causing fascism well in the clips of Alex Jones on January 5th and 6th like telling people they're going to war you know cheering them into the you know attack the capital like he's you know well they're, they're preying on they're look there there are these like disenchanted broken mostly men yep. uh, who are looking for someone to confirm their kind of violent, angry, solipsistic worldview. And the far right is co-opting these people uh, and kind of slowly pulling them down the rabbit hole from, you know, Ben Shapiro to Tucker Carlson yeah, uh, to some of the more French- With the help of all the algorithms. With, uh, uh, yeah. Until they get down to Alex Jones. Like, and I don't, I actually, I don't think that like, this is what is, I mean, this is, is it, this is like the, this is what makes a group of fascists dangerous. This is not what is, look, Fox News and the larger right-wing ecosystem is what is propelling the rise of fascism in this country. What Alex Jones is doing is capitalizing on that audience and making a part of it far more dangerous and caustic and violent. Yeah. Well, you know who's going to take care of it? Dark Brandon. Dark B. Yeah. And you won't <laughs> be able to take care of it if you're not caffeinated. Crooked.com. <laughs>
slash coffee. When we come back, <laughs> he, he's moving a lot of merch. This fucking asshole. Wait, he's we like, could, what, what are we doing? <laughs> we gotta get into the. We gotta get oh into the, the gold no, game, like wanna, Ron Paul. I don't think we like should do on this. Note. I don't think we should do that. When we come back, Lovett and I talk to Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who is uh, about to be the Democratic nominee for Senate in Wisconsin. Joining us now is Wisconsin's Lieutenant Governor and future Senator Mandela Barnes. Welcome back to the pod. Man, so happy to be back. Appreciate the invite. Uh, really happy to talk about this race. Yeah. I mean, before we get to the race, uh, I wanted to ask you, the Senate just passed the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 on Sunday. Uh, the Senator, you're running to replace Ron Johnson, voted against it. What do you think about the bill? Well, I am so shocked that he voted against it, right? <laughs> it's just like, I mean, it's ridiculous. Anything that does good for people, uh, especially young people, uh, or just the future of this country. Uh, I mean, given the fact that he's attacked Social Security and Medicare, even for uh, our Asian population, he, he's just not been there for us. But I'm incredibly excited that the Senate has done something to get to work for the American people. I've always led with the fact that the Senate is broken because the real perspective and American experience is missing. Uh, it's I can't think of many more out of touch places, right? This is a millionaires club, and that's just not the reality for a majority of people in the state of Wisconsin. Not a, a reality for a majority of people across this country. And to see the Senate act on such a significant piece of legislation is something uh, that does make me excited. But it also uh, gets me amped up for the work that's still uh, the work that's yet to come. Yeah, I wanted to ask because, you know, another senator who's endorsed you, Bernie Sanders, voted for it, but said it would have minimal impact on inflation, said it turns its back on working families. What do you make of Bernie's criticism and just, you know, progressive activists who might be out there and say, you know, a little disappointed. I wish we could have done more. Well, I'll say there's always more to do. And we've been held up for, from progress for far too long, having to always sit out and wait to wait for a deal that works for Kirsten Cinema or a deal that works for Joe Manchin. When so many more people uh, across this country, the overwhelming majority of uh, people across this country support things that are more significant. I get it. Uh, the fact is, that's why this race is so important. That's why this cycle is so important. I would have certainly voted for it with the understanding, with the idea that, yeah, we should still push for more, but we won't get more until we have a uh, U.S. Senate that is more reflective of uh, who we are as a country. And that starts this November 8th when we flip Pennsylvania, we flip Wisconsin and uh, whatever other state that's uh, in the cars for us. But there's a lot of hard work ahead and people get uh, people get what's at stake here. And the fact is, Ron Johnson is going to be a reliable no on anything that moves us forward. And I'm incredibly proud of the support that I've gotten all throughout this campaign. You know, Bernie Sanders was an endorser, but we have um, we have expanded our support to include the entirety of the Democratic uh, Party, people like House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, uh, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Cory Booker. And I'm excited to have a chance to work with them to push for uh, push forward for the people of this country who have been waiting for so much more than we've been getting. So speaking of Ron Johnson as a reliable no vote, uh, your future colleague, Senator Tammy Baldwin, introduced the Respect for Marriage Act 
She's trying to wrangle up 10 Republicans. And all of a sudden you see Ron Johnson say he sees no reason not to support it, which was surprising because he's a fucking dipshit. So but then all of a sudden this week, he's starting to backtrack. Uh, Were you surprised that Ron Johnson seemed to be open to it? Uh, uh, Or does it feel like now and, and does it feel like now he's returning to form? What do you think? Well, I'll tell you, I was surprised when he said he was uh, open to it. It it just didn't, it seemed very out of character. (laughs) And over the last couple of days, you see now Ron Johnson choosing uh, to take a position that we always expected. This is another case where we have adults in the United States Senate who opt to act like children. I think Ron Johnson, uh, one of the challenges you'll have with him is he gives you kind of a target-rich environment. There's there's quite a few ways you can go at him. Uh, what do you think is the most succinct and effective case against Ron Johnson? Man, this dude is so out of touch. Like, that's the problem here. Uh, just a couple months ago, I'm not sure if you all caught it, but there was uh, Oshkosh Defense. They got the uh, contract for the next generation postal vehicles. And... Ron Johnson is from Oshkosh, and this company decided that they wanted to send those jobs that should have been for Wisconsin workers down to South Carolina. I got nothing against South Carolina, but what I'm saying is I'm running to represent Wisconsin. I'm lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. We're fighting to keep those jobs here. Ron Johnson's response was, we have enough jobs. I cannot think of a more out-of-touch position to have. We're talking about 1,000 family-sustaining union jobs. This is a person who cannot be more out of touch. And it feels like uh, every week there is something. As you mentioned, we had him voting against cap and insulin costs. Uh, Just last week, there was the threat to Social Security, threats to Medicare. Also, voting against benefits for our veterans and who are impacted by burn pits. Like he has left every single community in this state behind. Uh, But again, that is who he is. And our thing, though, with the campaign, as much as there is uh, you know, against him. He, he's truly been a, a poor representative uh, for the people of this state, but we have to lead with our values. We have to lead with our vision uh, because people aren't going to decide at the ballot box based solely on how bad he is. People know what we need to know what we stand for as Democrats. And that's one thing I feel that uh, we've sort of struggled with in previous election cycles where people don't necessarily know where we're coming from, what we're up to. Up to. And Republicans have taken that time to define us for the American people before we've had a chance to do it. So we're getting out front. We're talking about our plan to rebuild the middle class, to bring back good paying jobs, uh, to bring back opportunity in every corner of the state of Wisconsin, all across this country. My story is a very Wisconsin story. My granddad moved to Milwaukee after serving in World War II. He got a job as a union steel worker, walked into the factory, walked back out 35 years later. He was able to lay a foundation for the family. My dad followed in his footsteps, but the opportunities for people in my generation uh, to get into the middle class it feels like those there are fewer and fewer. It feels like there are significantly uh, less entry points to the middle class than there were even back then. And that's the real problem we're experiencing right now. But as Democrats, we have to have a plan to hold corporations accountable that send our jobs overseas and also make sure that the wealthy are paying their fair share so everybody has a fair shot at the American dream. So let's talk about uh, uh, jobs from Wisconsin across the country. Can we please put the map up? Uh, we have an important map I need to show you. This is a current map of Culver's locations <laughs> in the United States. All right. Now, they've expanded. This is Wisconsin-based Culver's. They have a butter burger. They have cheese curds. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Do you see that there's these two big states, New York and California, uh, some of my favorite places to live exclusively? 
you're the you're currently lieutenant governor. You've done a great job, kind of representing Wisconsin, building Wisconsin. Uh, what's happening here? What, what do we need to do to get this map uh, more blue in more places? You got to you got to get a map that shows the expansion in the last four years since we've been in office. Uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> Taking credit for the Culver's expansion. <laughs> what do I need to do to put you? I need a Culver in Los Angeles. I, I can't live like this anymore. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, man. We 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 win this Senate race. We're gonna we're gonna start the expansion. Okay. And I, I, and for all, I'll tell you, for all the other fast food restaurants out there, this is our great replacement theory right here. Gonna <laughs> be Culver's on every corner. That's right. That's right. Don't hear Ron Johnson talking about that. He never talks about that. That's for sure. He's afraid of that. <laughs> Um, all right, so we. T- <laughs> well, now that we've got- I'm here to derail the interview. No, which, I want you which to know that successful. I, I, I added my myself mind, to this interview. I of, added myself for this purpose. I'm thinking of the segue back into. A, I don't even have speaking one. Of, speaking of the economy. Just speaking say speaking of the economy. Of the economy. Anyway, so <laughs> clearly, you uh, so you made the case against Ron Johnson. Uh, Republicans have already previewed the case they intend to make against you, which is that they're going to say you're too progressive on issues like immigration and policing. You're too close to progressives like Bernie and AOC and the Squad. I know you've said this isn't about labels, but would you characterize your views as progressive? Well, I'll tell you, Republicans said the same thing about Tammy Ball when she ran for U.S. Senate two years ago. And she's been proving them wrong ever since. And I've seen some very some self-defined moderate candidates get the same attacks lobbed at them. And the way we overcome this is by generating real enthusiasm across the state. And people are concerned about that. People want to know who has your back, right? Like, I tell you, Wisconsin goes in so many different directions. We have Tammy Baldwin and Ron Johnson in the U.S. Senate simultaneously. <laughs> you know, we went for Obama twice, voted for Donald Trump. We went from Scott Walker to Tony Evers. The fact is people are going to show up for the person they know is going to show up for them. And in Wisconsin, it's not about, you know, the urban verse rule. It's not always left or right. It's about the people who have consistently been at the top and everybody else who's been left behind at the bottom. And the who is going to actually show up for uh, for for these populations that continue to be ignored. Um, there was a real powerful moment during one of the primary debates where you shared uh, your mother's abortion story. What prompted you to share that? And, and how central of an issue do you think abortion should be in this campaign? How central do you intend to make it? Yeah, I'll be very honest. Um, so it first came up, we've been hosting a, a series of roundtable discussions about many different issues uh, during this campaign. And we did have an abortion roundtable. And in that discussion, I, I shared my mother's story. There was a reporter there who was, you know, very, you know, he, he was very professional about it. He said that he would not write about it unless I got my mother's approval. And, you know, I'd known about it you know, for a while. And I had a talk with her and she was more than willing to share a story. She actually, she's featured in one of our uh, most well-received commercials, actually. Uh, She said that she shares her story so others can know that they are not alone. And I think that uh, having her strength, her courage uh, has helped me throughout this campaign and being able to share that uh, on the stage was, you know, certainly very intimate moment. Uh, But I do want people to know how serious this issue is, how close it is to each and every single one of us. And I do think uh, that this is uh, this is the big issue uh, in this in this election cycle now, because we're talking about a fundamental right, a constitutional right, 50 years of precedent being overturned. When you take away people's rights uh, to bodily autonomy, uh, when you take away people's rights to make their own decisions, uh, people show up in kind. And we saw that in Kansas. 
Um, you've been serving as lieutenant governor in a state where one of the most gerrymandered legislatures in the country has tried to strip Democrats of all power, including the governor. Uh, you know, you look at Wisconsin and people say that that could be the future for the for the rest of the United States uh, if we go to that if we go down that anti-democratic path. How does Wisconsin get out of this mess if Republicans have such a lock on the legislature? I'm sure you've thought a lot about this in your time as lieutenant governor. I tell you, it's a sample of what's to come. I don't think we would have seen a president, Donald Trump, if it were not for Governor Scott Walker here uh, in the state of Wisconsin, a person who made his whole political career on the backs of or on division, keeping people separate, making uh, working people the enemy of one another. And I'll tell you, you know, people ask all the time if you're ready for uh, the chaos of the U.S. Senate or the chaos of Congress. Like, Have you all seen the state legislature in Wisconsin? <laughs> uh, but but the way the way out of that is uh, through Congress, through the U.S. Senate. You know, if we can pass H.R. 1, if we can pass uh, significant democracy reforms that include uh, outlaw and banning a partisan gerrymander, we'll be in a much better place uh, as as a country. I mean, this is not who we are, the sort of representation we've been getting. I can tell you, I want to say in 2020, uh, Assembly Democrats won over 50 percent of the popular vote and came away with uh, 38 percent of the seats. That's what Jerry Penner has done to this state. And it has led to uh, some very uh, extreme uh, legislation coming out of uh, the, the assembly and the Senate. Fortunately, we do have the veto pen that stopped much of that from becoming law. Uh, but again, this is not what the people of Wisconsin have called for. People of Wisconsin support uh, universal background checks for firearm purchases, ban of assault weapons. People support marijuana legalization. Uh, people support a higher minimum wage. We still have a $7.25 minimum wage in Wisconsin. You know, all these issues that an overwhelming majority of the people here support, but do not even get a public hearing because of gerrymandering. And anytime people ask, you know, what's holding up progress, it is quite simply the legislature and also the state Supreme Court that acts as a partisan extension of uh, the Supreme Court. And at the same time, we have Ron Johnson in the U.S. Senate that is doing the same exact thing that they're doing uh, in the state capitol. And he wants to see a partisan takeover of our elections. He wants things to be worse. They are not bad enough for Ron Johnson. <laughs> things are not bad enough for him. So, But it sounds like the answer then is things have to get bad enough that people vote in enough numbers to overcome the gerrymander. Well, that's the thing. We have to. The thing is, if we get a majority, if we get a couple extra seats, get rid of uh, the filibuster, get to work, see significant democracy reforms, including banning a banning of partisan gerrymandering uh, through Congress, then our maps will change. So uh, you'd be the second youngest United States senator after that haircut from Georgia, and, uh, <laughs> and you would. <laughs> Just, just, just joking with Asaf. We love Asaf. We love Asaf. <laughs> uh, you would double the number of senators younger than me, and to a lesser extent, John. Uh, <laughs> Fuck. Uh, care to comment? <laughs> I would also, uh, I would also plunge the network, the the median network, like it would descend like so far. It would, it would like almost <laughs> cut it in half. <laughs> so, but like, you know, we talk a lot about the dangers of living in a gerontocracy. Why does it matter? to have sort of a new generation in the Senate. What's the difference uh, yeah. between having a young representative, a new representative, and someone who's been in the Senate for a very long time? It's all about perspective. You know, any governing body needs an accurate perspective of the people that are being represented. Now, the fact is our generation 
is, you know, the first is going to have fewer opportunities than the one before us. And if we aren't in seats of power, if we aren't in positions of power, none of that changes. I'm not saying we need a whole millennial uh, Gen Z takeover. What I am saying is that we do need at least some voices to say, well, no, I don't think that's a good idea. We need people who understand uh, things like social media, understand what it's like to have gone through uh, multiple economic crises, having lived through a pandemic, having all these sort of all these things thrown at us that has made life substantially more difficult without leadership in place uh, to help us truly see it through. And then on top of it all, a working class perspective that is missing as well. We we, we see the Senate typically stall when it comes to uh, bold legislation that comes out of the House. And it's because that working class perspective isn't there. Things like the child tax credit, expanding the earned income uh, tax credit, significant, substantial, immediate action on the climate crisis, you name it. Uh, it's because uh, people haven't had to experience uh, life as a majority of people do. And our generation is, quite frankly, uh, had it tougher than most. Thank you for um, including me in your generation. Um, we're we're and, the same generation. No, I agree. No, you and I are contemporaries completely. Love it. We'll be 40 <laughs> in just a few weeks. Yeah, but it's like a young 40. It's an L.A. 40. It's an <laughs> L.A. 40. Honestly, it's a, a, a West Coast 40 is a Midwest 47. Let's face it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Take it. Oh, deal man. with it. Deal. That's wow. it's, from, it's from the That's cheese. Tough. It's because of all tough. the cheese. It was tough. <laughs> uh, Mandela Barnes, <laughs> thank you for joining whatever this was. Thank you for being here. It's good to see you. Congrats in advance on uh, on Tuesday and uh, and good luck in the uh, in the months to come. And wait, what, one more. Just uh, and uh, uh, what can people do right now, listening, yeah. uh, to help yeah. your campaign? What's the what's the best thing people across the country can do? Absolutely, you can go to the website mandelabarnes.com. Follow us on social media as well. All right, All right. and that's the other Mandela is the Twitter and Instagram handle. Yep, perfect. Yep. All right, a take great, care. Thank you so much. A great follow, you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you to Mandela Barnes for joining us today. And uh, uh, we'll be in Nashville Friday, Friday night for a show. Mm-hmm. So that's the next uh, Pod Save America you'll hear. That's right. Hopefully we'll know more about this whole FBI thing. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have something maybe, to talk about. Maybe bring a little more. We'll talk to you then. More information. Context. Knowledge. Bye, everyone. Maybe. Maybe we'll bring Popat. <laughs> Let's get Popat on the blower. Popat, where are you at? Can we get... All right, cut the... Just cut it. It's in. This is the end of the show. <laughs> it's like, I have a real name? <laughs> yes. Please, Mr. Pope has my father. <laughs> Mr. Hat. <Hope. laughs> I don't know what's going on. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. <laughs>